So a broken bone, is it the same as a fracture? Yes. So people will come to me and say, oh, I broke my baby finger. I'm like, okay, so you fractured it. Well, no, 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 no. The doctor said it was broken. It's the same thing. But people think it's different because some doctors will use the term fracture and some doctors will use the term bone break. It's the exact same thing. There's all kinds of different bone breaks or all different kinds of fractures. So we're going to need to know the different kinds. So when we talk about a green stick fracture, if you guys were to take a tree limb that was young, so the tree limb's green, and you try and break it, what happens? Shreds. Yeah, like, so part of it will break, but part of it stays together because it's still very pliable and malleable. Have you ever tried to do that with a green like very young stick. But you take an old stick and you break it and it's like <laughs> easy. So green stick fracture usually means that this is an immature, exclusively immature bone that only partially fractures because it's essentially like that green stick. There's some elasticity still in the bone. So it's usually a partial fracture. A spiral fracture just means it's an S shape. That's all that means. An oblique fracture, which we're going to talk about, means that it's on an oblique angle. Comminuted, you need to know. If you hear the word comminuted, it means multiple pieces. So more than three parts. So if there was a fracture, for example, let's just say that we were looking at the femur, there would be a part here taken off, and then there'd be a fracture here, and then there'd be um, a fracture here with a piece of bone. So multiple yeah. fractures, essentially. That was harder to heal, is it not? Um, it depends. Okay. So we're going to talk about open and closed. So those terms are really important. If you have an open fracture, it means a piece of bone went through the skin. Okay. Compound. Open or compound. Okay. Yeah, they would be interchangeable. Closed fracture means it did not go through the skin. So all of these are closed bones. Sorry. All of these are closed fractures. Because as you can see, where the fracture occurred, there was no going through the skin. But this one, it goes through the skin. So if you hear comminuted compound <coughs> fracture or comminuted open fracture, that's really bad. Because you have multiple pieces and it means it went through the skin. If it goes through the skin, there's a very big chance of infection. Right, so much more serious. Okay, um, there are some other terms that we need to talk about, but they're gonna come. So how do you get a fracture? Trauma. Typically, most commonly it's from trauma. So falls, car accidents, that kind of stuff. How else can you get a fracture? Okay, so soft bones or brittle bones. So pathological fractures would be that. What about fatigue fractures or stress fractures? Who do you think would commonly get a fatigue fracture or stress fracture? Runners. Runners, classic. Military, really, 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 really classic. Where's the most common place to get a stress fracture or a um, fatigue fracture? The fibula is non-weight bearing, so it's not the fibula. Sorry, the tibia. Tibia. It's not the tibia. It's not the femur. The femur's giant. It's not the femur. It's not the femur. So do you guys remember when you learned about the foot? Oh, I'm not going to be able to draw this picture. When you guys learned about the foot, you learned about your cuneiforms. Yes. 
and then you had cuboid right here. So you had your first, your second, and your third cuneiform, and then you had your cuboid here. So your cuboid had fourth and fifth metatarsals, right? Your third cuneiform had your third metatarsal. Your second cuneiform had your second metatarsal, and your first cuneiform had your first metatarsal. Did you notice anything? The base of the second metatarsal is actually more posterior or proximal, whatever term you want to use. When you walk, if you remember, you're supinated, you, you heel strike on the outside of your calcaneus, and your foot is supinated. When you go into mid stance, you now start to go into a pronated position, and when you toe off, you're supposed to toe off after the, after the second digit. Now, when that's happening, your pressures are all coming at the base of the second metatarsal because it sits more posterior. So in fact, the most common place to have a stress fracture or a fatigue fracture is the base of the second metatarsal. And they call that military fracture because it's most commonly happening from march or march's fracture. It's happening from marching. So that's really, really common. But yes, anywhere in the lower limb would be the more common place to have a fatigue or stress fracture, 100%. But that, there's an anatomical reason why it happens at the base of the second metatarsal. So anytime after 30, we are now in a decline. So from 0 to 30, we're building bone mass. After 30, we are declining bone mass. So we all go downhill after 30. Yep, that's just the way it is. <laughs> I know, it's wonderful. Most common time to have a fracture is in kids. Why? They're maniacs. They're maniacs, yeah. <laughs> so they play a lot. And they jump. And they're on playgrounds and high levels. Of the and they jump off of the playgrounds. And they run into each other. So there tends to be a little bit more trauma, self-induced trauma, when it comes to kids. <clears throat> so it is much more common. So, hip fractures. Really common after the age of 50, and for every like nine to 10 years after that, it like more than doubles. So at 60, your risk more than doubles. At 70, again, more than doubles. 80, more than doubles. 90, more than doubles. So your hip fractures are going to be really, really, really indicative in the older population. That's really, really, really important. So part of your education and your training of individuals when you're treating them when they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s is fall prevention. Because most of the time when they fall, they fracture their hip. So educating them on stability, proprioception, and strengthening is huge. And that's going to be part of your job. And a lot especially of times you die after hip fractures. It is very significant. It is what, very significant. So the cardiovascular risks with these individuals are usually already pretty high. Oh, and they're... And then on top of that, now you're trying to heal bone, and you're not moving, and so, yeah. Does the time to heal bone, like, it obviously, like, be a lot different between like, an elderly population and younger population? Yes. Like, what kind of difference are you looking at? Like, I don't know what I, like, I've broken bones, like, I've been in a couch for, like, four weeks is, like, usually... Four to six weeks is pretty classic. And so, like, say, like, uh, like a... 75-year-old lady were to say break her arm somehow, like her, like what kind of duration can you expect to have? 
So here's the thing. We're going to talk about, let's just go to here. Okay, this I need you guys to know about. When you have, and I'm, again, I'm going to answer your question. When you have a fracture, okay, um, they usually say four to six weeks, you want to immobilize it. So whether it's in a cast or whether it's in a plastic boot or whatever. But the thing is, you go get an x-ray. And it may now, after the x-ray, they may turn around and say to you, okay, you need another two weeks, or you need another three weeks, or you need another month. How do they determine that? They're looking for the callus formation. So when you have an x-ray, and you're looking at a bone, so let's just say, oh, let's just say that this is the bone. And this, so this is where your fracture is. When the fracture first occurs, within 24 to 48 hours, the body's mounted an inflammatory response. It usually takes now a few weeks before, well, 10 to 10 days to kind of like two weeks to start building a bony matrix, which basically means a framework to get the two bones of the edges together, okay? So now, once you've got the framework, now you're gonna start depositing calcium and phosphate. Now that could take a few weeks, and the body is gonna start developing calcium and phosphate, and it's gonna look like this. It's hazardous, because it's just putting it down, just put it down, just put it down, just put it down, let's try and mend these two ends. This is what you're looking at on an x-ray. It'll actually look like a cotton ball at the area of a fracture. We call this the callus formation. This is very important because they're not going to take off the cast until they've x-rayed. And what they're looking for is they're looking for the callus formation. If there's no callus formation, that cast is not coming off because there's no framework and there's no calcium and phosphate that's being deposited. So usually once the callus formation has occurred, they'll usually let the cast start to come off and tell you to just be very leery with it, like don't use your arm too much or don't use your leg too much. Or if it's in the lower limb and you need to use your lower limb, they'll usually keep your cast on for another week or two until the body all of a sudden will start to resorb part of the calcium or part of the callus to now make it so that the bones are actually attached and you can't even tell there's been a fracture. So, long story short, if they're in good health, not a whole lot of medications, and they're relatively active, even if they're in their 70s or 80s, they, if the callus formation happens within three to four weeks, they can be out of a cast in four to five weeks. Now, if they're diabetic, that could take six, eight, 10 weeks, but we'll only know when we x-ray to find that callus formation. So, it's really, that's what's really important. When people say, oh, I'm going for another x-ray, that's what they're looking for. They're not taking that cast off until they see the callus formation, okay? So it's highly dependent on the patient. Is there any pre-existing conditions? Are they, di are they diabetic? Is there any other um, osteoporotic or osteopenia going on? What's their nutritional levels like? Um, age does play a factor in it, but there are lots of 70 and 80 year olds that do heal fairly well. So. It's, it's hard yeah. to say. Um, but that, please know about your callus formation because when people say, ask you, well, why do I have to get another x-ray? Why can't they just take the cast off? You're gonna explain to them. They're actually gonna look for bone mass being formed so that the two ends of the bones are coming together, okay? <clears throat> um, okay, 
So things that you're going to notice, obviously, there's going to be pain at the point of the fracture, right? There's probably going to be inflammation at the point of the fracture, and we're talking about closed fractures here. How could you test for a fracture? I can't wait there on it. So the, the Ottawa Anchor Rules dictate that if you're unable to weight bear at all, zero, then yes, you should be getting an x-ray of the lower limb, 100%. So the Ottawa Anchor Rules will dictate when an x-ray is required and when it's not required. So if you can still weight bear, they will not x-ray. Um, so that is one indication. But you guys as therapists, how could you have a clinical impression? What could you do to have a clinical impression of a fracture? Like what test could you do? I mean, if it's an open one, you're sending them to a merge. But if it's not open, how could you test whether or not it's a fracture? Like, how do you know if it's a third degree sprain or a third degree strain or a fracture? How, do you, how are you going to be able to tell? Range of motion. Range of motion will be really, really, really effective. Yeah, I'd say palpation, like the part that's not. Okay, so if you palpated the third degree sprain or strain, it's going to hurt like hell. So that's that, a fracture. So exactly, so how do you differentiate those? That's what I'm asking you. Um, how do you as a therapist differentiate that? I don't need to, do you? I mean, you could certainly just send them out for an x-ray, but there's stuff, stuff that you can do. I thought the weight bearing would be the most indicative part. But what if it's an upper limb? Okay, but if it was a third degree sprain, would that be just as painful? Okay, so if it was a third degree sprain, are you still stretching this inner structures? Okay, but now you're, if you're doing length and strength, you're stretching ligaments and muscles. So all of those things, you're going to have positive findings, whether it's a fracture or a third degree sprain or strain. So what you can do, vibration. So for example, if you were thinking there's a tibial fracture, you're not going to do vibration. Let's say, I don't know, let's just say you thought the fracture was in, like, the shaft, okay? You wouldn't tap right at the shaft because obviously that's going to cause pain. If you have a bruise, it's going to cause pain. If you have a strain, it's going to cause pain. If you have a fracture, it's going to cause pain. But what you do is you either tap above or below. And the idea is that the vibration that goes through the bone, if vibration goes through a ligament or muscle, it might be a little sore, but it's not like they're going to want to punch you. But the vibration going through a bone is significant pain. You basically just reproduce their pain. So you can do a tap test, vibration, above or below where you believe the fracture is, or you use a, oh my god. Thank you. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> yes, or you use a tuning fork. And actually, 80% of x-rays, or 80% of fractures can be diagnosed through a tuning fork. So you're going to hit... The, the, the two prong parts of a tuning fork on something metal, and the bottom, you don't hold it super tight, because if you hold it super tight, the vibrations aren't gonna go to the bottom, right? So you strike it, and you put the bottom part on the bone. The vibration, if the vibration goes through the bone and there's significant pain, 80% chance of a fracture. What key is this? This one's actually not the best one to use. I think this is 312, yeah, 156 is actually the best one to use for a fracture. It has to be like a note. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. But there's, there's five different levels of tuning forks that you can buy. I think 156 is probably the best one to diagnose clinical impression of an x-ray. So that's something that you guys can use, and you should use it. 
because 80, research says 80% of fractures can be diagnosed through a tuning fork. That's huge. Now, if you don't have a tuning fork, like I said, you can tap on the bone, right? Above or below where you think the fracture is, because the vibration that goes through the bone gives is highly indicative of a fracture. So that's really important. Obviously, the best form is x-ray. That's really what's going to dictate whether or not you have a fracture. Now, if this is an incomplete fracture, if it's a green stick fracture, remember you need 30% bone destruction before you can see it on an x-ray. So, why are x-rays so commonly missing fractures in the first 24 hours? Like, has anybody here heard of anybody that's gone to the hospital, got an x-ray, and got told there was no fracture, and then went back a week later and then got told there was a fracture? Have you ever heard that? Because of movement? No, it's because there wasn't enough bone destruction at the time of the injury. There has to be 30% destruction of a bone to see it on an x-ray. So I will always say to my patients, if we're still suspecting a fracture and they told you to go home, I will always send them back three to four days later. Because usually at that point, there's been enough bone destruction that you usually see it on an x-ray. Okay? So if my tuning fork testing comes back positive, send them back a few days later. Because it's very, very common in the first 24 hours for an x-ray to be to miss a fracture, really, really common. All right, <clears throat> so words that we wanna know about. Impact, it just means that the two ends like got driven in together. So more commonly when you're like jumping from a high structure, for example. Um, commonly we talk about as many parts, green stick, usually it's immature bone. Compound means, or open means, it's going through um, the skin, so that's really important. And, Okay, displaced versus non-displaced. You will see these on x-rays. So a non-displaced fracture is oftentimes you'll hear it with a rib, which is a really good sign. It means the two parts of the rib are still like touching each other. So they're actually articulating the way they should be, which is great because when the callus formation happens, it's probably gonna heal properly. But if you have a not if you have a displaced rib, the big problem is lungs are right there. Puncture of the lungs is a big, big, big issue, right? So that's another thing to keep into consideration. Okay, osteonecrosis. If we look at that word, osteo and necrosis, what does it make you think? Bone destruction. Bone is osteo, and what's necrosis? Death. Death. So you have bone death. Why would you have, why would your bones die? Lack of vascularization. Exactly, lack of blood supply. Where do you, what bone do you think um, might suffer from not having a lot of blood supply that might be predisposed to having osteonecrosis? Large ones. So, what do you, like, like which one? The Why, knee actually has quite a bit of blood supply. So what part of the femur do you think doesn't have a lot of blood supply? So the, the middle, the head, the middle actually has a fair bit of blood supply. Now, if you guys remember the acetabulofemoral joint, so if this is the acetabulum and this is your femur, okay, so we actually have quite a bit of blood circulation that goes around the head or the neck of the femur there's actually quite a bit of blood circulation. And a little bit of that will go up in towards the neck. 
But how does the head get blood supply? There is. You guys remember, there was this triangle thing right here on the femur. What was that called? The fovea capitis. The fovea capitis had the ligament of the head of the femur going to it. The ligament to the head of the femur had blood supply in it. That is how you supply blood to the whole head of the femur. So if by chance that one blood circulation or supply is compromised, how does the head of the femur get blood supply? It doesn't. You don't have blood supply to the femur, guess what happens? It dies. Okay, so the most classic place to have osteonecrosis is the head of the femur, and the reason why is because it's very hard to get anastomoses or extra blood supply into the head of the femur. So it is the most common place. <coughs> so it's also known as avascular necrosis, which tells you exactly the cause. There's not enough blood supply to the bone, so it dies. So it is more common, most common in the hip, Okay, that's called Chandler's disease, but it can happen in scaphoid talus and the proximal humerus. Those do have more blood supply than the head of the femur. So the head of the femur is your number one place. So if you have a thrombus, which basically means a clot in this artery, that could be a really good cause. Or if you had a fat embolism, which is actually probably one of the most common reasons why you end up having osteonecrosis of the hip, means there's a piece of fat that actually traveled, and because that artery is actually quite small, it actually blocked off that artery. So fat embolism is actually a really, really common reason why people end up getting um, uh, osteonecrosis. If you have no blood supply for two hours, you already started the process of the bone dying. Two hours. It's pretty quick. <clears throat> so, initially this is not going to be painful. When the bone's dying, you're not going to notice. You're not going to start to notice until it starts to crumble. And then it's going to become inflamed, right? Because there's bone destruction, which means now the joint being involved. And at that point, it's going to become very, very, very painful. So, painful is progressive. The more you're on it, the worse it gets. The longer it goes on, the worse it gets. Hint, hint for one of the cases that you guys are working on. Um, TMJ vascular necrosis. So remember we talked about we talked about bisphosphonates, which are medications that we give to people with osteoporosis. So oral bisphosphonates are not really a big deal, but when you talk about bisphosphonates for bone cancer, for example, which is about five times the level you would give to someone that has osteoporosis. The major risk with that is avascular necrosis of the jaw. So the bones, like the, the jaw itself, actually starts to erode. The teeth fall out, the teeth start to shift, um, the gums actually start to become exposed. So that's one of the major issues, but it has to be like a significant amount of bisphosphonate treatments, which is usually for bone cancer. So you do see that in the jaw. <clears throat> okay, so how it gets diagnosed? Okay, well this is in the bone. So x-ray is your number one option, but how much destruction has occurred is usually CT or MRI. And they'll usually, um, this is not something that goes away on its own. Once the bone's dead, the bone's dead. So some kind of hip surgery is required. So they'll shave out the bone, they may put a metal piece in, they may do a, a partial hip replacement, they may do a full hip replacement, 
but they're going to be replacing that hip somehow surgically. So this is what it looks like. So this is a normal hip. You can see the nice head of the femur. You can see the acetabulum, everything looks really good. And now look at this. It's kind of like jagged, not very clear edges. So this is starting to break down. And again, the acetabulum looks fine, but the head of the femur is not looking so good. So this is now the beginning of osteonecrosis or avascular necrosis of the hip. Lent County Perthy is exactly the same thing except it only happens, it's self-limiting, which means it will go away on its own, and it happens in immature kids. So it's the same thing, the head of the femur is still starting to degenerate, it's collapsing a little bit, but it'll actually reform in itself. So it could take six months, could take 12 months, but it'll actually reform, and it'll totally go away on its own. So it's self-limiting, which is wonderful. <clears throat> so um, we call it osteochondritis ossificans juvenile which means bone, cartilage, inflammation, and then it's gonna ossify on its own and it only happens in kids. So that's essentially the process of what is occurring. We don't know why this happens in kids, like no cause for it, but essentially it's gonna take six to 12 months before it fully, fully, fully resolves on its own. Now, once it's resolved on its own, these people will usually still need therapy because in 12 months, how much compensation would occur? These kids probably aren't trying to use their hips, right? There's gait abnormalities, there's weight-bearing abnormalities, there's gonna be strength abnormalities, there's gonna be asymmetry, and there's gonna be a whole bunch of compensation. So these kids, again, these are skeletally immature kids, so they could be five, seven, nine, 12, 14. They usually will end up getting quite aggressive physical therapy for the next five years, three to five years after this resolves. So this we kind of added as an extra thing to cover. And then the next thing we're gonna talk about is gonna be Osgood's ladders, which I also added because I think it's important because I have a lot of patience with this. Have you guys heard of Osgood's ladders disease? That's not anything. Perfect, tell us about it. It was awful. I was like, it started because I had a really big growth spurt from when I was like 10, like 12 at age. And uh, from running and just doing a lot of. So what made it worse? Any kind of like activity. Like what? Like running, jumping, yeah. If you just tap it lightly, it is so painful. It is like, yeah, it just makes you want to cry because it gets hit by accident. Okay, so think about your kid. You just said 10, 12. Okay, so it's really common in boys like 12 to 15, really common in girls 8 to 13. The most common is boys kind of like that early adolescent age, like the 12 to 13, 12 to 15 range. Okay, so that is the most common. Secondly would be girls anywhere between 8 to 13. So you are not skeletally mature at this point, right? So you have an epiphyseal growth plate on the tibia tuberosity. Now imagine here you're doing lots of like squats and jumping and running and you've got that patellar ligament, that patellar tendon that goes into the patellar ligament and it's pulling and tractioning on this epiphyseal growth plate. So what does the body do? Bone lays down bone along the lines of stress. So here you have, you have an epiphyseal growth plate and it's constantly being tractioned. So the body's, what's the body gonna do? Let's lay down bone. So I'm causing inflammation here because I'm tractioning and I'm pulling it away from the underlying bone. So there's pain because there's a lot of inflammation and then the body's like, ah, let's put down more bone. So do you have a noticeable little oh, yeah. lump? Oh yeah. Okay, so once you hit skeletal maturity, 
that bone that you've laid down, it stays with you. So the problem with that is now that your tibia tuberosity is gonna be really large, which now changes your leverage system. So as you get older, it could now start to change how your quadriceps move because your quadriceps should be at a 90 degree angle, but now if your tibia tuberosity is out, it now is always working in a concentric position rather than working more eccentrically. So it does make, it can make a large difference in the long run. Um, why else do you think this might happen? Could it be caused by deformities like genuvalgum, genuvarius? So knock knees, bow knee, could that cause any? Sure, because it's so polar. Yeah, the abnormalities, the postural abnormalities can definitely, definitely happen. So this happens in children who are skeletally immature, okay? Um, so we talked about who it happens in, that's really important. Knee alignment can definitely be a risk factor, but the most important thing is, is the, the trauma, the jumping, the repetitive, and it doesn't happen in all kids. So we don't really know why it happens in some and not in others. Well, some kids grow faster than I others. Think, I think they're growing. Like, I'm sure that's not having a growth spur, which probably grew like three or four inches in a night. Everything like, yeah. <laughs> but there are kids who have a really strong growth spurt who don't develop this. And there's really, really, really strong athletes in their 10, 12, 14, 15s who also don't develop this. Maybe so it has to do with ligamentous issues. We don't know. Like, maybe because some people's ligaments are more relaxed than others. But this, but this is a bony the epiphyseal growth plate. Yeah, but the ligament's what's pulling on the bone. Oh, you mean the patellar ligament? Yeah, maybe it has to do with elasticity of the ligament. It, and maybe there's a little bit more elasticity in females versus boys, which maybe that's why boys have a little bit more, but honestly, at this point, we don't know why this happens. Because it doesn't happen in all, in all like elite, elite athletes. So tendons attach muscles to bones. Oh, so so this would be your tendon. And then, and then truly, the yeah, when it goes patella to, I mean, it's truly the, yeah. the definition of a ligament right. to bone, right? Okay, so that's really important to know about. So it's gonna be really, really achy. It's usually aggravated by activity, just like you said. So squats, sitting, jumping, anything that's gonna use the quadriceps, right? So when you make the quadriceps contract, it's gonna pull on the tibia tuberosity, which is usually gonna cause pain. Probably did, for sure, for sure. So, can you treat this? Would you treat somebody that has Oshkin Slatter's disease? A kid comes in. Yeah, so if Vesna was telling you that she's now like super acute and a lot of pain, red, hot, swollen, you're gonna do your... Right, you're, you're not probably gonna do a lot of pressure because yeah, compression and pressure is going to aggravate them, right? And again, you don't want to put too much pressure on the bone because it will lay down more bone. But the rest, the ice, the elevation, right, you're definitely going to do. Your general sweetest massage where you're going to do a lot of lymphatic drainage, you're going to do that kind of stuff, right? You're probably going to do a lot of relaxation techniques to the quads above, right? Try and take away some of the pressure. When she's not in an acute episode, what can you do for her? So, what about education? Are you going to educate her? Well, yeah, okay, you're going to educate her about what's wrong with her, yeah, but like, when we talk about educating patients, 
things to avoid, right? Or things that they can do, like um, tendonitis, patella tendonitis. What do you do for patella tendonitis? You work on the quads, but what can you talk to them, patient, about? So they usually talk about putting a strap right on the patellar tendon, and it tractions the patellar tendon, creating a better leverage system so that the quads don't have to work so hard. So you're going to treat this just like a patellar tendonitis, but you, and you're going to educate them that as soon as they start feeling pain, stop and avoid some of the aggravating activities, if they can, right? But education is huge here. Okay, damn, I wanted to go through these cases. Okay, that's okay, we'll do it next week. Um, so next week, we're doing hematology, but we're gonna go through these cases, because I think these cases are important. Um, but next week, we're doing hematology. I haven't posted the notes yet, because I haven't made them, but I hope to make them this weekend. Um, but you can read it up in ports. And please do the cases that you guys are working on. Because there's going to be, you know, three to four of them probably on your final. No, there's no of the answers. Sure, you can ask me. But the, the, the whole thing is like, like I want you guys to actually go through. Uh, yeah. Uh, here. Is anybody else missing? I she I gave her one because she did say she was bleeding. Anybody else? We're good. Okay.